Well, people of God in Christ, as we continue in Romans 8, uh, we, we, we might start by noting and acknowledging that uh, here is uh, a passage um, uh, in which the Apostle Paul is being a good servant of Christ Jesus. Um, what I mean by that is Paul is not teaching something contrary to or even really beyond what our Lord Jesus himself taught. Jesus said, as he still says today, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, as he still says today, in this life you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The second of these quotes from our Lord especially emphasizes the point that uh, there are two distinct promises, we might say, in the gospel. Number one, the promise that Christ has overcome the world. He is our salvation. But number two, the promise, if if we want to put it that way, uh, the promise that in this world you will have tribulation. The call to take up your cross in order to follow Christ is, uh, is the call to expect and to endure suffering as a Christian. And why would we do that? Why would we believe in and follow Christ even with the so-called promise of suffering? Well, because of the first promise. Uh, Because we have the promise that Christ has indeed overcome the world, that he is our salvation even unto eternal life. If you recall, the subject of suffering began already as we closed last time. Uh, Verse 17, which we read again, uh, says, If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But then this, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8 really is a, a remarkable chapter of, uh, of God's word, remarkable on, on one level because it rings forth, as we've said, the glorious promises of the gospel. No, condem- no condemnation, uh, resurrection, adoption, that was last time. Um, and still to come as we continue, uh, the Lord willing, will be glory and purpose and protection. Um, do you want glory, purpose, and protection in your life? I, I dare you to say no. Isn't that what we all want? We all want something more than we can hope for naturally in this life. We always want something more. We all want purpose. Uh, All the better that it's an eternal purpose to live by. Um, We all want... Excuse me. We all want um, protection from God. Uh, as we live out that purpose. But Romans 8 is a remarkable chapter of God's word because it also promises suffering. It's kind of remarkable in the negative. Uh, Take hope, it says, um, but take hope even in the expectation of suffering. There's there's no sales job here. There's, uh, There's no equivocation in the gospel. Uh, Take hope, says the gospel, but prepare to suffer as well. As American Christians in the 
21st century, uh, perhaps this message is especially given to us. So as we begin with our text, Romans 8, 18 to 25, let's start with this uh, first point, our present groanings. In verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This instruction from Paul makes it clear that he was writing to people who were already suffering. And how were they suffering? I think it's clear that uh, they were suffering specifically as Christians. They were suffering because they were Christians. At almost any point, they could have lessened their suffering by turning away from Christ in order to appease the world. But as Paul continues, I I also think that he draws in, I'll make a case for this, that he draws in the sufferings of this life that are normal and natural to everyone. It makes me think of Psalm 90, which, uh, which says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. We certainly ought to admit and acknowledge how good we have it in this day and culture. We have an abundance of food. We have a regular supply of clean water. Uh, We have so much of medical technology to aid us, to alleviate our pain and keep us alive through ailments that uh, in the past would have cost us at least the quality of life, if not life itself. And yet, even as we enjoy the blessings of this modern world, the reality of suffering and death are still plain to us, is it not? We still hurt. Uh, we still have aches and pains. We, we still grow older day by day. And, uh, and we still know that we are going to die and that the grave awaits us. The Apostle Paul was certainly writing to believers in Christ who were suffering specifically for their faith. But it seems to me that, that when he wrote of the, the sufferings of this present time, he was including the, the basic sufferings, the, the standard challenges of, of life, which are significant. The, the reality of life in a world where death still reigns. This we can see as he goes on to write in verse 19, for the creation waits for or, or, or waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And in verse 20, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Here we see what has already been pointed out, that, that mixed together in 
in Paul's instruction is bondage and, and corruption along with freedom and glory. But the point is that our present sufferings is not just your present suffering and not just my present suffering, but the present suffering of, of the entire creation. Here is a, a difficult passage. Might as well admit that. Um, at least a difficult reference uh, because Paul is not any too specific. Uh, creation has been subjected to futility. This uh, it should make us think not only of Psalm 90, but also of the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, wrote wise Solomon. Happy is the person who is enforced to discover the vanity of life, but happier still is the one who does discover it in order to look beyond this life of vanity, or to use Paul's word, futility. But the, diff- the difficulty comes with the understanding of who subjected it. Uh, it's usually not a, a sign of good writing. I hate to take on the Apostle Paul here, but it's, it's usually not a sign of good writing when you use a pronoun that doesn't have a clear antecedent. That's what Paul does here. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who's who's him? Who subjected it to futility? The easiest answer is to say that Adam, by his fall, subjected creation to futility. Blame it on Adam, if we will. The problem with that reading is that Paul writes, for the creation was subjected to futility, Not willingly. Was it not an act of Adam's will to sin and to bring all mankind to ruin and misery? Even more, Paul writes, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom, the glory of the children of God. Well, surely Adam did not subject creation to futility, thinking, oh, I see, if I, if, if I sin against my creator, I will bring about the hope of redemption. So, it's a difficult reference from Paul. But now that I've introduced you to a certain uh, ongoing theological discussion, uh, allow me to return us to the main point. Because the main point is that creation is groaning. We are groaning all the more as as we get older, all the more as we suffer for the cause of Christ and for the sake of the cross. But God's word says that all creation is groaning. And and it's it's clearly a matter of personification. Uh, Creation is not alive to the point that it has consciousness and audibly groans. And yet Paul teaches that creation is groaning and is even waiting. But what is creation waiting for? Creation was subjected to futility. And what is creation waiting for? Not just its own redemption, but for the revealing of the sons of God. 
verse 19, for, for the creation waits for eager, or with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Here's a point to critique a, a certain theological perspective by which uh, the call is made to redeem creation. We have to redeem creation. So it gets said, creation is waiting to be redeemed. We need to redeem creation. Creation has been subjected to the curse. We need to undo the curse. What does that even mean? To redeem creation. Well, it, it means whatever they want it to mean. Sometimes it means environmentalism. Uh, sometimes it means social action. Sometimes it means civil rights. But what is creation waiting for? Is creation waiting for measures taken to reduce climate change? Uh, is creation waiting for the right for two men or two women to, to get married? Is is creation waiting for people to just get along with each other like they did at the Tower of Babel? No, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, which is why Jesus commanded us not to go and redeem creation, but to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So by all means, let us be good stewards of all that God has created. Let us, let us both use and protect the environment. Let us care for the poor and protect those who are abused. But the call of Christ is to preach the gospel, to seek to bring sinners into the kingdom by faith, call of Christ is to reveal. We, we, we get to be caught up in this, in this redemption. And how does it happen? By preaching the gospel to reveal the sons of God so that in the end creation will be redeemed in the new creation that has come and that is coming. In the meantime, we groan. Facing disease and disability at a rate consistent with our age. And one comfort in our groaning is that we groan along with all creation. But we groan along with creation in hope. A day is coming, the day is coming, when creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and, 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 and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Don't let anyone tell you that you are equal to a tree or to a dog or, or a cat. There will be a great redemption of this world, but it will only come by the redemption of God's people. And when the full number of the elect have been brought in, then the end will come. Creation will be redeemed, but it will be redeemed only because and only as the full number of the elect have been redeemed and gathered and saved. In the meantime, we groan. 
But we groan even as we await the glory that is to be revealed in us. The second point is our awaiting glory. But that brings the question, is, is heaven waiting for us? Or are we waiting for heaven? Sadly, I think heaven awaits us more than we await heaven. One thread that runs through this passage is, is really the, the sovereignty of God in salvation. There, there are places in Paul's writing where he explicitly teaches the, the sovereignty of God, like when he writes in Ephesians Uh, 2 verse 10, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The sovereignty of God and salvation is the the teaching of God's word that that God is doing something in this world and, and, and you are either caught up in it unto your salvation or you are not. God created the world in the beginning. The world fell into sin. And now God is saving his elect out of this world to live forever in a new world and a new creation. And if that's offensive, it can't be helped. It it is offensive. But it's offensive to the proud heart of the sinner. It's a message filled with joy, however, for the one whom God chooses to save and so this is why paul can write concurrently about there being no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus while also being honest about the suffering to be endured think about it how how can paul say that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us If we are faced with suffering now, how do we know that there is a glory that awaits us? Well, granted, there are those who suffer and and turn and, and do not continue. The fancy word for that is apostasy, the act of, uh, of facing temptation, experiencing suffering, and so turning away from Christ and, and from the cross. But that's exactly why Paul is writing this letter. From the start, Paul wrote in Romans 1, verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged. Paul wrote this letter to to the Romans to acknowledge their suffering, whether the common suffering of living in a world of death or living out a Christian life that brings the added suffering of persecution to whatever degree, Paul wrote this letter to the Romans exactly because they were suffering and to remind them of the glory that awaits them. And that's exactly the problem. That uh, Not that the glory increases and decreases, but that we increase and decrease in our focus on the glory that awaits us. Is the glory awaiting us, or are we awaiting the glory? The first answer is clear. The promise of of God is that an unimaginable and an unalterable glory awaits us. The second answer ebbs and flows. In some days, we await it. 
In other days, we forget what is in store for us. So we need God's word on, on a regular basis to, to call us back. Here, here's the case for, uh, for Lord's Day worship. Every first day of the, of the week, here's, here's the case for personal and family devotions throughout the week to keep us focused, lest the, the glory be diminished. Not in its essence, but lest it be diminished in us. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, Paul writes of what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. But these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The phrase that comes to mind here for me is, just you wait, just you wait. The... The harried housewife uh, says to her children, just you wait until your father gets home. But this is just the opposite. Because of Christ, just you wait. Because of what he has done, just you wait. Because of the saving work that Jesus has accomplished for you, just you wait. And this is exactly what Paul writes in the end, in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And that's the third point. Finally, our patience in suffering. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's a statement. Why does Paul put it that way? A a statement, we wait for it with patience. Why not rather say we should be waiting for it with patience or let us wait for it with patience? I, I think it's a statement, though, because that's just what faith is. Faith is waiting. And waiting always, always requires patience. So it's just the reality of this world, even more the reality of being a Christian in this world. If faith is real, it will continue and it will persevere in faith. And granted, our patience is going to ebb and flow. In some days we are patient, in others' day not so much. But patience is not only a virtue, patience is really just what faith is. Faith is believing in the promises of God for what will yet be. And what will yet be because Christ has been here. And he has done the saving work that he was sent by his Father to do. So as part of this last point, Let's ask a a final question, the question of application. How can we be patient in suffering? And and I think this will apply to everything across the spectrum of suffering, from from broken-down cars to broken-down bodies, and even to full-on persecution from the world. First, again, the question, how can we be patient in, in, in suffering how can we be patient in suffering? First, 
find patience in suffering by looking for the glory that awaits us. This perhaps is the most explicit application because verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul writes, For I consider. But the point is that we should consider. Sometimes we think of things like patience and and peace uh, as as things that just come to us. Uh, Lord, grant me peace. Uh, Give me patience. But patience is found by considering. To put it another way, patience is not passive, but active. As we suffer, we rightly grieve But if we would persevere through suffering with patience, it will take active consideration. We need to remember that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In times of suffering, even in moments of just disappointment, in in other words, even in in those those minor moments of, of suffering, Uh, Our thoughts must go to the promises of the gospel and there must be within us a a daily anticipation of heaven. How often do you anticipate heaven? If you answer not very often, it's probably because you aren't suffering, which is okay. I don't think you have to go looking for suffering. But when suffering comes, and, and I know it has, for you and it will come and when it comes be ready with what we might call the skills of patience consider the glory that awaits you think on christ the temptation for us is always to to say to god what have you done for me lately why is this happening to me now But the call of faith is to consider, to to consider first what God once did for you at the cross and what God has promised to do for you in the end and even for all eternity. Heaven belongs to you now by your faith in Christ. And you, you can enjoy heaven now. But you must confess, as Paul did, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I I like how Paul starts out in the first person singular. This is the English person in me. He starts out in the first person singular and then finishes in the first person plural. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So that we wait for it with patience. Second, find patience in suffering by admitting that your suffering is not unjust. A hard truth. But it's not that we deserve something better. 
If we deserve something better, then, then what's the conclusion? God can't give us something better, or God won't give us something better. And so you end up either with a God who is overcome himself by evil and thus fails to give us the something better, or you end up with a God who is unjust, who just won't, who won't give us the, the better that we deserve. But neither one is true. I think we all know that. And we are complicit in our own suffering. And I don't mean to say that there is, there is a one-to-one correspondence between our sin and our suffering. In other words, God's not paying you back when you suffer. But we suffer because we live in a world of sin and we ourselves are sinners. We are complicit in both sin and suffering as we live in this fallen world. You've probably heard this, the idea that uh, while we want to ask, why do bad things happen to good people? The equally valid question is, why do good things happen to sinners? The grace of God began to flow into this world even as sin entered this world. And God made it clear that he might justly punish sin with death even at the moment of sin. Sin and die. That's justice. But sin and live on, for a time at least, that's grace. Every day sinners live in rebellion against God and every day they continue to receive blessing from the God they rebel against and that's the grace of God. And so for us, we we suffer, we are subject to death, we get sick, we get better, uh, we live on in this world. So instead of asking, how could you do this to me, God? When we suffer, we ought to ask, how could you do this to me, God, when we prosper? But that's not natural to us, is it? What is natural is to assume the blessings of God and to claim that we are unjustly treated when we suffer. So so here's a, a last way to find patience in suffering by knowing and believing and rejoicing that there is a worse suffering that has been taken for us by Christ. In this passage, Paul is explicit about comparing the sufferings of this present time with the glory that awaits us. And that's a, that's a strange comparison to compare, to compare now the, the degree or or to compare the degree of our suffering now to the degree of our glory later. There's no comparison. Uh, You may may be at a negative 10 on the suffering scale. Uh, You may drop to a negative 100 on the suffering scale. But but on the same scale, there is a plus 1 billion for the glory that awaits us. That's Paul's point in comparing the two, our suffering with the glory that awaits us. But there is another comparison to be made. The comparison between 
our suffering now and the suffering of Christ for us. So in the midst of our suffering, sometimes we just need to consider the glory that awaits us. At other times, we need to consider the glory behind us, the glory of Christ taking our place on the cross. The glory of Christ suffering death and hell for us and setting us free. We are not yet set free from the suffering of this world, but then again, aren't we? Are we not already set free from the suffering of this world? We still suffer, but there is glory behind us and and there is glory in front of us so that there is the call even now to glory in Christ Jesus. Patience and suffering will be found as we glory in Christ Jesus and as we wait for that glory that is to be revealed in us in the end. Amen. Let's pray. Grant us the faith, O God, as you are the giver of faith. Grant us the faith to glory in the cross and to remember the glory that awaits us so that even now we will glory in Christ Jesus so that we will have patience, perseverance, endurance through all the sufferings of life. Give us this faith and may we not lose sight of the great glory of Christ our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.